Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, I'll discuss Norman Lewis with Ruth Fine. Fine is the curator of Procession, the Art of Norman Lewis, at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia. The exhibition is on view through April 3rd, 2016. Then it will travel to the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth and to the Chicago Cultural Center. The outstanding exhibition catalog, one of the very best of the year, was published by University of California Press. Norman Lewis was one of many American painters, among them Clifford Still and Jackson Pollock, who pioneered large-scale American abstract painting in the years after World War II. Still, somehow this is the first retrospective of Lewis's work since he died in 1979. Fine was a longtime curator at the National Gallery of Art, where she organized exhibitions of Romare Bearden, Helen Frankenthaler, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein, John Marin, and Georgia O'Keeffe. On the second segment, we'll revisit my 2014 conversation about Larry Sultan, with Los Angeles County Museum of Art curator Rebecca Morse. Her retrospective of Sultan's work is on view at the Milwaukee Art Museum through January 24, 2016. The show includes the work Sultan made in the early 1970s with Mike Mandel and continues through his mini-series of work, including his Pictures of Home Photographs of His Parents and Their Relationship and The Valley Photographs of the Suburban Porn Industry. The exhibition catalog was published by Prestel. But first, Ruth Fine on Norman Lewis, after the break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Rothko for more. And we're back. Ruth Fine, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I haven't seen the show because as we tape this, you're still installing it, of course. But as I read the catalog, I found myself wondering once again how it was this show hasn't been done since since 1976. And I sense you wondered the same thing because it's kind of how you close <laughs> your catalog essay. Obvious question. Why has no one done the big Norman Lewis show in 40 years? I don't have an answer for that. I think one of the things about Norman Lewis is that it's not easy to come up with a signature image for any period of his art. And it's a lot of work to go out and see a lot of paintings, but that's true for every exhibition. I think Lewis has been misunderstood in various ways. I hope this show will open up people's approach to him. I think he's been categorized as an abstract expressionist, and I don't think that's really true except for some works. He's been categorized as a social realist. 
I think that's true for very few works. I think all of the labels that have been given him are not appropriate, and I don't have a label to give him now. As I was just saying to the fantastic staff installing the show here at the Pennsylvania Academy, I'm glad I was an old person when I did this because it's the first exhibition I felt I had so many questions about and felt so uncomfortable with my knowledge about. And if I was young, I would be really nervous about that. But being an old person, I don't mind saying I don't know the answer to that. And with Lewis, I have a lot of I don't know the answers to, including your first question. Why do you think or... Or am I not supposed to ask you questions? No, that's okay. I mean, I, I, it's, it's ever since I first heard about this show a couple of years ago, I've, I've, I, 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 I've, I've wondered. I mean, the artists who explored figuration and abstraction and in different media concurrently for parts of their careers, I think, have sometimes failed to fit a certain New York-centric narrative about how post-World War II American art happened, and maybe he falls into that? Oh, I think he certainly falls into that. He had the added burden. He was, he was African-American, and so that's going back and reviewing, I think, most generations before our own of African-American artists has to be done for other artists as well. So someone I hope will do some of the other people, like Lewis's contemporary Merton Simpson, who was an abstract artist that I think really could do a looking at, a close looking at. I think people are more familiar with the work than they are with Lewis the man or or Lewis's life. And I'm not sure how important it is to lay out some biography, but it's probably a teeny bit important. Lewis is a New Yorker through and through. He studies at New York schools and with artist groups going back to the 1930s, is politically engaged and so on. Is there anything in his biography that that you think is particularly important to set up or understand before we get into the work itself? Well, I think the fact that he always was certainly connected very strongly to New York and connected very strongly to left-wing causes in New York and also involved in a big picture when he was at the Harlem Community Arts Center as both a teacher and a student. He got involved with Vaclav Vitlachev, whose name I may be mispronouncing, and learned about the modernism that was happening downtown at a very early moment. Because of their political connections, he became very close with Ed Reinhardt at a very early moment. And I think all of these uptown, downtown connections for Lewis played a role. He was very tuned into what was happening in New York, and I think that probably was most important to his evolution. He talked about going to the Museum of Modern Art once a week. As a young artist, he drew at the Museum of Modern Art. He was a very curious, intelligent man with a, a very interesting library, examples of which we'll have in the show, very well read. My guess is he saw everything there was to see and absorbed every bit of it. And I think he had a breath that was quite extraordinary and curiosity that was quite extraordinary. As far as his biography itself, I mean, as you say, he was born in Harlem. He was in Harlem most of his life until he moved downtown in the late 1960s. He 
traveled in Europe only once in 1957. That had an impact on him. He traveled in merchant marines or um, situation as a young man, right? And that gave him a kind of international curiosity and an awareness of other people. There's a, I've read a lot of his letters, which are, are not published, and various notes that he did. He was just probing. He was always probing, I think, from very early on till very late. And he didn't ever want to be defined by any one thing. And I think that showed in his life, and it also shows in his work. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it does show in the work. I think a certain kind of intellectual, I don't know if restlessness is the word, but a, a refusal to be pinned down to a, an image, a style, a, a mark is, is certainly in the oeuvre. So, so let's dive into the work. Lewis makes, starts out making figurative paintings throughout the 30s and well into the 1940s. We've been kind of dancing around the idea of Lewis's sociopolitical engagement, not just in his life, but how it carries into his work. And, and when we talked a moment ago about why recognition for Lewis has trailed some others. Maybe it's because that wasn't a super common thing for New York painters to explore in their work in the 1940s. But there's one watercolor in particular, it's dual-sided, dates from 41 and 42 that you noted more than suggests reveals a, a certain American duality, and maybe that's a good place to start. Well, that double-sided watercolor, much of Lewis's work is undated. And so one side of that is dated, the other side is not dated. I'm guessing it was done in the late 1930s. And that's a kind of rural landscape that we're guessing was done in the South when he was there in 1938. He, believe it or not, was sent by the WPA to the South to set up schools. You can imagine how he was welcomed and received there. But there's this, it's not exactly a sublime landscape, but it is a landscape on one side of the sheet and on the other side of the sheet done later is a police beating of an African-American man that looks so much like what we see on television now that it's shocking and frightening and depressing. And he always said, he said that he started out with political content in his work, but that he ultimately realized that the people that needed to see the political content weren't probably going to see his work anyway, and that that wasn't the way to be a political activist, that the way to be a political activist was to be a political activist and to have the work be on its own. Uh, throughout the exhibition, we're going to be, have some quotes by Lewis, and he's always emphasizing the importance of the aesthetic on in the work, that the, the, the work has to be rooted in aesthetic issues. And so that recto verso watercolor shows both the political side and by the 40s he was saying he'd given up politics and clearly he hadn't and he never did. It was never not an issue to him no matter how much he went against it. I mean there are people who get very upset with the idea that I argue with things that in this case Lewis but other artists say and you just can't take any artist's words as verbatim as to what they absolutely believed in any way. And so I think Lewis's work shows one thing and the words say something else and they're in conflict. But much of the work is in conflict as well. And what's so interesting about him for me is that right when he's doing the toughest civil rights march paintings, Toughest in one way, or, or civil rights paintings, some of them are just totally tough and blooded. Bloody and others are about black and white community. 
But at the same time he was doing that, he was doing quite abstract, romantic, landscape-based images in the same year. And so he was always kind of coming from different places. It's fascinating. This is skipping ahead a bit, but I think I'm okay with that because we're discussing subject in the work. You note in a number of places in your essay, and I think in, in some of the work, it's particularly evident that Lewis wasn't shy about referring to the Ku Klux Klan in his work. Do you have a favorite example or two of that, or, or a painting or two that, that kind of best... Well, I mean, the strongest example of that is the painting called American Totem, 1960. I mean, you can't get any better than that, I don't think, can you? It's a painting that shows, it's on a, on a the, the background is entirely black. There is a figure in in white that kind of comes into focus as a figure when when you see a neck and two eyes and then a pointy hat a pointy hat was there any particular reason in 1960 i mean other than the obvious but i mean was there a particular event that that you think motivated that painting i don't think there was any particular event i mean lewis's files are totally filled with articles cut from newspapers and magazines about racism in America. I mean, they're also riddled with all kinds of musical references and everything else. So everything is in them. But he was totally conscious and aware of the struggles that uh, were going on in this country uh, with the Freedom Rides. You know, I mean, the painting, there's a painting called Redneck Birth and a painting called Rednecks. They are red, bloody paintings. They are abstractions. If you didn't know the titles, you might not know what they were. And one of the real problems with Lewis is that so many titles have gotten lost. And there may be many more paintings that have references to civil rights issues than we know. And some paintings have been given titles that were not Lewis's. I don't think Lewis ever gave a specific instance as a title. So that there's a painting in the show called and we titled things Title Unknown because in the Willard Gallery archives, and Willard Gallery was Lewis's dealer from 46 to 64, 65, no canvas that I saw a record of was without a title. There are lots of works on paper without titles, so I was not uncomfortable leaving works on paper untitled. I think for most of these paintings, if one, someone had the time, and I certainly didn't and never will, to sit down and measure paintings and try and figure out dates and relationships, it would be possible to attach titles to paintings eventually. But I, yeah, I don't think anything happened that inspired, any one thing happened that inspired that painting. He knew everything that was happening and horrible things were happening all the time, everywhere. He's one of the few American painters of that generation who moves back and forth between works that are only black and white and works that are rich with color and has equal facility with both. And and I think these the, the paintings you just mentioned are are, are are good examples of that. We were we were noting a moment ago that, that he starts out as a figurative painter and kind of gradually transitions to great fluency with abstraction, and that, that happens kind of around 1945. Is there a key moment or a key painting or a key, key series of paintings in which we see that happening, or is it broader and slower than that? I 
think it's broader and slower than that. There is a painting called Composition One, which I, I have a feeling may be the first painting that could be called totally abstract from that title. And I think that title was his title. But through 19, especially 44, 45, there is a real transition from figuration. And I think almost all of his figurative paintings have key influence from Cubism. I don't think of Lewis ever really as a realist in the traditional sense of that word. I think Cubism was critical to him. He certainly saw the, all of the shows at MoMA that would have led towards abstraction. Uh, but 45, we have, there, the first section of the show is called In the City. And In the City is divided into three sections. The first one is looking at art, where we have drawings he did based on uh, African masks that were at MoMA in 1935. And one painting that is absolutely, in my mind, inspired by a Kandinsky that was on view in moment in 1936. The color in that painting really. Well, yeah, and that painting has been published since 1946, and many people have said to me, oh, you'll have to convince me that's 1936. Well, if you look at it, it's signed and dated on the painting, and it's, it's clearly 1936 and was published in Lewis's lifetime as 1936, but it was later published in 46, and I'm sure that was a typo. And so many people who I showed that painting to said, oh, I don't believe it was 36. Well, it was. I don't know anything else like it. But if he was looking at African masks in 35, why wouldn't he be looking at Kandinsky in 36? Or Van Gogh, for, for, that, for, for that matter, in 1937. The 1936 painting is titled Fantasy. His Van Gogh riff from the next year is um, a painting of shoes titled Buddies that is... The, the, the catalog is ridiculously lavishly illustrated, not just with Lewis's. The thing is lavish, ridiculously lavishly illustrated. So it's, yeah, these connections in, in, in the book are, are, are hard to miss. I guess maybe this is where I should point out, given that I keep complimenting the catalog, that moment of disclosure, my, my first book is being published by UC Press, which published the catalog. It, it, it's kind of interesting to me that we're talking about these paintings kind of in, in, in the late 30s and early 40s, because I think that one of the, the false narratives around Lewis is that he gets lumped in with late developing painters of that Gener, you know, of, of the generation after Pollock, which is which is false. So in 45, he's making ab abstract paintings, and that's very much within the New York abstract mainstream. So outside New York, Clifford Still is making abstract paintings since 42 or 43, but there are still representational elements in de Kooning and Pollock in 1945, and Franz Klein doesn't start making, you know, those big booming abstract paintings for which he's famous until 1950. Absolutely, and Franz Klein was very, very complimentary about Lewis. He admired him. Uh, there's an interesting quote by him as being one of the underknown painters of his time. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it, I I think that as people read the book and see the show, that they're going to understand why why I keep bringing us back to my own confusion. Yes, why not? <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that's that's interesting to me, speaking of other painters finding Lewis's work of interest and Lewis hoovering up visuals all over New York, 
is Lewis does seem to be looking at, at, at Clifford Still in the 50s and 60s at a time when Still was was in New York, but you know quickly made himself difficult. I can't imagine that the two were pals. Still was a McCarthyite right winger, and Lewis was anything but. Yeah, it seems like Ed Reinhardt was the person he was a serious pal with. Uh, that was, he was close, and I mean, there are so many fascinating stories surrounding that. Uh, Ad Reinhardt's wife, Rita, studied with Lewis at the Jefferson School and remembers him with much love and respect. I was able to speak to many people who had Lewis as a teacher. He was a very admired teacher and, and giving teacher. I mean, I think he was a tough, you know, hard-smoking, hard-drinking like everybody was in that time, but he was he took young artists seriously i think he took art seriously totally seriously and you know he talks in um, a video that was made in 1976 about how he thought if you really worked hard enough and did good work that was all it really took and he you know later realized that playing the game was part of it as well that you had to go out and meet people. And, and of course, being black, he probably wasn't invited to all the parties that white artists would have been invited to, even though he was in a wonderful gallery and close to Marion Willard and her family. There are wonderful photographs of Lewis with the Willard, Willard Johnson family uh, out in Locust Valley. I mean, his, I mean, hoovering is exactly the right thing. He just absorbed everything that was put in front of him that was of interest to him. The conversations must have been extraordinary. He and a woman, Joan, who was his partner, companion in the late 40s, early 50s, apparently used to have the equivalent of salons in their apartment where people came and talked. I just want to go back to something you said a while ago, which was talking about him both as a colorist and someone who worked in black and white. And during his lifetime, he was mainly admired as a colorist. Art, art journal articles and interviews with young artists constantly refer to his brilliant use, brilliant and subtle use of color. And, you know, I think the great Studio Museum exhibition in 19, uh, late 1990s called The Black Paintings you know, have given a kind of base for how how people view Lewis. And even in that show, there were a lot of paintings with color. But the idea of a, being a painter of black paintings took hold. And one of the things I hope is that, that this exhibition counters that. I mean, there are a lot of black paintings in it, but the color in this exhibition is extraordinary. He was so subtle in his use of color. Earlier, we discussed how Lewis doesn't have a signature move or a signature image, that he, he had this real fluidity. But one of the things you noticed that he uses a lot, if that's the right phrase, is a procession motif. I think that's your phrase. What is that and, and kind of how, when and why does it enter Lewis's work? Well, of course, that's the title of the show. And I picked Procession. Yeah, Procession, The Art of Norman Lewis. And I picked that because that did seem like a motif that went through. And as far as I can tell, the first clear procession dates to 1947, which was the year of the first uh, Labor Day parade in Harlem. And this is a dated painting. And I think that had an impact 
on him. You can't prove it. He doesn't talk about it. You can't prove almost anything, as far as I can tell. Um, so he went from the Caribbean processions that went throughout Harlem, and of course the Garveyite processions in the 20s would have been something. He said there were lots of parades in Harlem. But the painting, and it's, an un, it's a painting without a title, but I'm pretty sure it's a procession. It has given titles. And it, it went from there to the late 1950s when he was in Europe and did a lot of carnival paintings and carnival, processional, carnival processions, and then the civil rights processions. And so it seemed like the one thing that there was a handle for that, that carried over from the 40s until he died. And so that's the origin of, of my thinking about that. But as I said, there was no moment when he was only doing processions, as far as I know. There's a painting from 1965 that is a title unknown. It's the cover image of the catalog, in fact, which has the, the parenthetical, which I presume is yours. No, it's not um, mine. It's not I yours. I didn't give any parenthetical title. Ah, that's why. Well, that, that there weren't any is why I was guessing it was yours. But the but the parenthetical is March on Washington. Do you have and and it's a it's one of the painting. I mean, it's an abstract painting. But once one sees the parenthetical, one sees procession, one sees movement, one sees left to right progression, literally progressive progression. How do you feel about that parenthetical, Ben? And and oh, sure. do you think he was that direct? No. Absolutely not. But that was the, the title that the owner has had on it since they bought it. And, you know, recently someone, there's a painting out in the world called uh, Detroit Riot. And there's no way that that was Lewis's title. I just don't think he ever gave a title that was that specific. I think he was always more metaphoric, more more layered. I don't think he wanted to be locked in. I don't think he wanted any painting to be locked in. I think he wanted, I think he really did believe in the power of art and the possibility that a painting would inspire thought in its viewers. And I think he wanted to leave that possibility open to people. I think that was really important to him, frankly. The, the titles he gives our, our interesting one one that has been in literature recently i think it was prominently featured in katie siegel's since 45 book a few years ago i think the painting's not in the show it's titled every atom glows the mfa boston from 1951 is that an example of of a lewis title yes that's a lewis title and is that as do, do, do you think that title is directly references cold war atomic i, I do i do and there's an essay in the catalog about that and uh, there's actually an essay I found relatively recently in his files about that. And so I do think so. But I still don't think that locks it into a specific day or a specific place. And that's what I think he was opposed to doing. That essay is, 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 is not by you, actually. It's, it's Adriana Campbell who... who addresses that that painting and it's it's kind of a, <laughs> one of the we were talking about the black and white and the color thing and it's one of those things where i'm on the, on the page on which we see every atom glows the facing page has a black and white painting and then you turn the page of the catalog and boom there's a uh, orange and red painting titled flames to freeze that is an example of his <laughs> ability to mix it up it's really really striking I mean, if you're interested, the reason I tried not to use the best-known paintings, the painting in the show that relates to Every Adam Glows is a painting called Blending. 
from 1951, the same year. And so they're closely related, and I just thought it would be good to get out there something that had been less reproduced and was less well-known. So that's, that's just my curatorial tendency. I'm less concerned with signature images than with related things to expand our knowledge of the artist. We've been talking about ways in which Lewis's abstraction had ties to the black experience in America. And as I think we noted earlier, he himself maintained that there was no link between his, his art and his politics. And, and, and you don't agree. Are there other specific, and we, and we talked about the, the, the painting that referenced the Klan and, and the marches. Are there other specific paintings that you think are really good examples of his engaging race in America in a way that is maybe less evident than a painting with a, a pointy clan hooded hat? Well, there's Journey to the End, which is another black and white painting that actually fascinates me because it has an overlay of what I think of as, as Crayola crayon flesh color in it. And I I, I went to that painting thinking, oh my God, this must, must be discolored white and had two conservators look at it and they said, no, it wasn't discolored white. It was flesh color, crayon flesh color. Well, the idea that, you know, a black painter is painting Crayola color flesh color over a white clan related painting, I thought was pretty interesting. There's a painting called Alabama. So I think all of these paintings have racial overtones, the rednecks, redneck birth. I don't think, I don't think it, I don't know that it's always obvious, but I think he is who he is and he doesn't change who he is uh, and his interests vary and many of the works are purely abstract and that's what mattered to him. I think in his conscious approach to what he viewed art as being. He was very concerned with abstraction and calligraphy. I mean, the calligraphic aspects of the work are extraordinary. We haven't talked about the works on paper, and it was the works on paper by Lewis that initially inspired my interest in him. I think they're absolutely extraordinary. There's a book in the show from his library on Chinese calligraphy. He was very interested in calligraphy. But it, it's all of a piece in a way with an emphasis on some things at one time and other things at another time. At least that's how I read it. There's a 1960 untitled work from the Pennsylvania Academy's collection that's ink on paper that I wrote down as a, as a, as a good example of a work on paper to bring up. It seems to reference everything from... Chinese calligraphy to to Max Ernst. Maybe that's a good work to talk about why the works on paper brought you into the artist in the show. Well, again, the works on paper are as varied as the canvases. And one of my feelings has always been what held Lewis's work together was for him the notion of process. I mean, he uses an ink line in a way that I know no other artist using it. It's drawn and then it's pulled. He, his works on paper are referred to as oil on paper. Uh, I'm not convinced they all even have oil on them, but many of them have pastel on them as well as oil. They are oil. The oil was all seeped out of them, like Degas did, because there's no oil staining on the verso. You don't have 40-year-old oils on paper with absolutely no oil seepage, I don't think. And many of them do have oil seepage on the back. 
So the, paper, the works on paper still need a, a lot of study. He used masking techniques. He used various kinds of layering and rubbing and blotting and I think frottage techniques, which would connect with Ernst in some ways. He, again, they're, they're absolutely fascinating. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to have a specific section in the catalog that just reproduced the gallery of the works on paper to emphasize their unique beauty and importance. And of course, there's a section in the catalog devoted to the prints as well, which often are left out of the mix in many artists' work. But the prints were critical. I mean, he he was a printer for other artists. He, according to record, printed for Lee Krasner and printed for Will Barnett and did his own lithographs. And then he shifted to etching and worked with Bob Blackburn and did very exper experimental work. Very few editions were pulled. So he was interested in working on paper in, in many ways. And of course, there are far more works on paper. And some of them are just plain line drawings, beautiful contour line drawings. But I still look at them and I can't figure out how they're made. And, you know, I've been looking at works on paper all my life. Nothing more horrible than for me to say, I really don't know how that was done. I looked at one work with several paper conservators, and quite honestly, they couldn't either. So they're not easy to deal with, and they're magnificently beautiful, really beautiful. And there are a lot of them in the show. The show has about 60 paintings and about 30 works on paper, and then there's a separate exhibition of the prints in... Pennsylvania Academy's historic landmark building called Stone and Metal, the Prince of Norman Lewis. So the Academy was wonderful in giving this exhibition a lot of space. Uh, some of the large late paintings are just as you enter the show so that you kind of, I hope, get blown away by the end before you even see the beginning and then you have to come out to the end again and then a separate show of the prints so that we could put out every aspect of Lewis's work. It's really exciting to watch come together. We've talked a good bit about Lewis's engagement with civil rights issues in, in his work. In 1963, along with a number of other black artists, he formed a group called Spiral, a group that they thought would discuss, quote, what should be their attitudes and commitments as Negro artists in the present st struggle for civil rights. Was that group important to Lewis in ways that went beyond including civil rights-related content in the work? I'm not sure I know how to answer that. He was the president of Spiral, so one thing, one way it could have been important to him is it would have been, he would have had a demonstration of his colleagues' admiration for him, I would think, in terms of his being elected that. He also, in the late 60s, was one of the founders of the Senke Gallery. So I, I think, and he left Willard Gallery in the mid-60s, and, and there was so much ferment in the African-American artistic community or the country, African-American way, everybody, in, in the 60s that I think the group, the kind of association, I don't know any real record of the conversations, but I think it gave him a base of camaraderie. Spiral, I think he and Bearden were very close. There's a film with wonderful comments on Bearden about Lewis. So I think it was a support group at a time when artists were realizing 
they needed a support group and but you know he was he was in many african american exhibitions art exhibitions he was not in others because the fact that he was focusing on issues of abstraction meant that there were those in the african american community that felt he wasn't doing the right thing what he should have been doing and so many shows and books that I would have thought would have included Lewis did not include Lewis. So it wasn't only whatever ostracism he may have had by being African-American and operating in the downtown art world, but similarly, there were issues in the uptown art world. But he was very tied into the founding of the Studio Museum in Harlem and was on a curatorial council for them. He was very supportive of young artists, black and white. And, and I think Spiral... I, mean, I haven't read anything he said about Spiral, so I, I never like to say what I think an artist thought about something because they're usually wrong. But the evidence for me would be that it would have functioned as, as a community base that was useful. He, of course, was on the picket lines uh, against, at the time, the Met did the um, Harlem on My Mind exhibition, which the black community was so upset by because it was a documentary show and paid no attention I mean, it, it introduced the Vanderzee, of course, but there were not uh, Harlem residents from the black community involved with the creation of that show. So whatever, whatever demanded an activist presence, I think Lewis was part of it. I think he believed in it, and I think Spiral would have kind of given cement to these activities at the very beginning of the 60s. Harlem, on my mind, was, of course, the infamous Metropolitan Museum of Art exhibition. There's a picture in the catalog of Lewis picketing outside the museum wearing a placard. Spiral's first group show was, I think, in 1965, and it was all works in black and white. And that, that show was in, on, on, on Christopher Street. The group was kind of broad enough in its exhibition agenda, if that's the right word. It's probably not. That same year, in fact, really at the same time, they also showed together at a temple in Yonkers. So they weren't kind of limiting themselves to downtown by, by any stretch. I think they wanted to show wherever they would have an opportunity to show. I mean, these people who were eager to get their work out wherever it was going to be seen. We have some wonderful documentary materials in uh, the exhibition from Lewis's archives of several exhibitions of African-American artists. And I only used the ones that he was in. But there are in his archives announcements of shows that he was not in. And finally, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, so well into his career, Lewis creates the largest canvases he makes as a painter, a group of, I think, 10 works. So their large size could signal a special project, of course. Why, why did he go big? Why did he go that big for 10 works? Is there something that holds those 10 together? Only their size. They all measure about 72 by 87. Some are horizontal, some are vertical. He bought a studio downtown in 1967-68, and by 69 he could work in it. So I think he was so thrilled to have a larger space to work in that he worked on larger canvases. They were, they are a kind of summary of many themes that he worked on before. Some are clearly civil rights related, some are clearly procession related. The earliest that I know of from 1969 is called Afternoon, and it has landscape elements. It also has procession elements. I think it could be read in, in a number of different ways, but I, I don't 
I don't really think he thought of them as a series per se, but I could be wrong. There are, they were followed by a group of paintings that he did think of as a series that are not as large. There's a, a group of paintings called Sea Change. Many of them are numbered. And then there's another group of paintings that just had numbers that are quite minimal and they're reproduced in the catalog but not there's there's none of those in the show you know at a certain point there just was no more room so he did work in series but i'm not convinced that group was a series and i don't know why they stopped in 72 maybe they came to the end of 72 73 he went to greece and started thinking about the sea change paintings and the and the uh, group of said, these black, blue, minimal, minimal paintings. I don't know that there are ten. I know of nine or ten of these paintings. There could be more. I, I saw as much as I could. There are no written records of Lewis's work. I, I followed as many tracks as I could in the time that I had. It's a lot. And so I, I, I make a certain number of educated guesses. But as I said, there's also huge amounts of uncertainty because I know of a lot of things that I didn't have time to see. I've seen some of them and not all of them. And every day, almost every day now, I hear about more. Or once the show opens, I'll hear about even more. So, so my guess is there are approximately 10. Maybe he didn't have any room to do anymore. Maybe he had 10 stretchers made and, and that was it. I, I, I don't know. No records. That's that's what's difficult. No records. There are the Willard Gallery records, which were fabulous to have access to. No records of the works on paper. And there are many, many more works on paper throughout the career. Makes the catalog all that much more important to document. Ruth Fine, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thanks so much for talking with me. I hope I see you at the show. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Welcome back. My next guest is LACMA curator Rebecca Morse. Her retrospective of Larry Sultan is on view at the Milwaukee Art Museum through January 24th next year. Rebecca Morse, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the book, which does something a little unusual. It, it presents 
Salt, Larry Salton's work, initially anyway, in reverse chronological order. And I wonder why you chose to do that. Well, this was something that we were particular about in terms of the installation as well. And we wanted to really begin both the show and the book. So talking about Larry Sultan's work with his most recent body of work. And I know this to be something that a lot of contemporary artists are interested in. It's a way of saying, hey, this is where I am right now. This is the work that I've come to, and this is how I want you to know me. And then the work is sort of going in reverse to see how you got there. It's a bit unusual because obviously we, as art historians and even as viewers, are comfortable with the straight chronology where you say, okay, this is where I began, I learned this, and it's evidenced by this, this, and this. But in this way, I think it really brings you up to the present and then allows you to kind of go go backwards. It's something LACMA did recently with Stephanie Barron's Ken Price show as well. She started with the present and then went backwards. Exactly. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the music world when people say, oh, I really love, you know, Tom Petty's early work. And, you know, hey, look, I'm making I'm making music now. <laughs> you know, look where I am right now. And I think that I think that's true of artists who are very active and and want you to know where they where they've realize the work to be. With all that said about going in reverse chronological order, for the purposes of, of audio, it's kind of hard to go backwards because <laughs> then what is always referring to. So for the purpose of, of today's show, we're, we're going to start with something called Clatworthy Color Views. What the heck was Clatworthy Color Views and, and why did it exist? Well, it is the name that Larry Sultan and Mike Mandel, who is an artist who an artist and friend of Larry's, they, they met as students at the San Francisco Art Institute and began making work together as a, as a collaborative. And they talk about it as an opportunity to really make work that they wouldn't otherwise be able to make on their own, really giving each other the energy and the, the okay to do things that were, were perhaps a little bit unusual. And in so doing, they created this kind of fake name, which is Clatworthy Color Views, which was something that they had borrowed essentially from a postcard production company in Colorado. And when they sought out some of the entities that they were going to ask to kind of to do to work with, they used this as a as an entry point. Yeah. So what I mean, they made up stationery and, and the whole kit and caboodle. What did they intend for this front company, if that's that's, I mean, that's kind of a loaded phrase, but it also is kind of what it was. What kind of distance did they want that to provide? What did they intend for that to tell or suggest to people who would engage with the company or, or the resulting art? Well, speaking specifically, they used it when they began working on their piece evidence. And this was a piece that they compiled with found images, images that they pulled from archives really all across the United States, primarily in California. So the Beverly Hills Fire Department, JPL. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Exactly. And other entities that had archives, the police department. And they used this Clatworthy Color Views on their stationery as a way of requesting entry into these archives. So that was a way of sort of masking, I guess, their individuality and kind of working around the system a little bit. And interestingly enough, these 
these archives did give them access to a lot of the images that they had. I think today, obviously, this is something that never would have happened. But at that time, they were fairly open and they let them pull images and ultimately made this great piece called Evidence, where they compiled really funny images of mostly men and machines. So men kind of working with, oh, fire hoses and scales and methods of recording and put these together to really essentially build a narrative. Also lots of landscape pictures. Also lots of, I mean, you know, no one would call either of them new topographicists or anything, but, but a, a, you know, maybe a, a quarter or 20% of, of the pictures are, are, are people doing, I mean, honestly, kind of weird things in the landscape. <laughs> you know, they are, you know, some of them are almost you know, like, I don't, I don't know what the heck's going on in some of them. Like, like there's a bedroom set sort of set up on a field in one of them, you know, you know, there's a, a woman leaning up against a piece of plywood with another woman kind of being held up behind her as a man with maybe a microphone or something strapped to him appears to grapple with her in front of maybe some tract housing in the background. I mean, there is, it, it, you know, there's also a lot of landscape in these. There is, and um, they are in black and white, and they were mostly shot in four by five. So they're medium format images that then transfer. So they're really quite beautiful and quite perfect. And you're right, you do get these bits of landscape, often pretty wide open, but some kind of clear skies. They look Western in that way. And then some are, you know, inside of offices, I guess. There's one, a guy wearing linoleum, lots linoleum, of linoleum, some carpet, yeah, some strange desks, et cetera. So this is a piece that's really kind of engaging with the idea of the archive and with uh, the inundation of images, to use your phrase. And I want to ask you about that in a moment. But before we get there, I, I think it's probably relevant to discuss how this body of work was transmitted? Was it a book, an exhibition, both, and did one have primacy? It happened simultaneously. It was a book and an exhibition at SF MoMA, and that was part of the impetus for making it happen. There was a conversation that Larry had with the curator at SF MoMA as he began, as he and Mike began to work on it, and it gave them a little, he said, oh yes, we're, we're absolutely interested in it. So when they went through, I think they logged in about two million Photographs is what they say. Two million? <laughs> yes, to come to a grouping of, you know, a little over over 70. It was then shown as an exhibition and then compiled as a book. And that's important because it is in some ways the book format that gives it its real meaning because it is about these immediate juxtapositions that happen. And it is about building from one image to the next and when we reproduced it in the book that we did for the exhibition, we tried to mimic that so that you would get these relationships from one to another and kind of build that that story on your own as a viewer. To give listeners an idea, we're talking about a traditional book format in the sense that there are two-page spreads. This isn't a, a, an every building on the Sunset Strip kind of conceptual physical object. This is kind of a more turn the page, see two images. Hmm turn the page, see two more. Right, exactly. And often they're very funny. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's it's subtle, the humor, and it's underlying. And you're. I think at first you're not sure whether or not they are supposed to be, but obviously that also gains momentum because the absurdity of them and then the accumulation of that absurdity is what 
ultimately makes you laugh. You've exhibited all of the works in the book. Is that always the way this piece has been exhibited? Mostly. And then we also have some extras. So there's a bit of a, a bonus round on the end, too, with about eight additional pieces. So that is particular to this installation when you see it in the galleries. There's a few more that aren't included in that original book. Which kind of differentiates this project from the way other, say, California or, or American photography, other American photography of the period is installed? Often you'll see, you know, many of the, the new industrial buildings from Los Baltz installed in a group of six rather than, than all of them. But this is very much a, a group. I mentioned a moment ago that Sultan, and especially when he's working with Mike Mandel, is is really engaged with the archive and just the sheer volume of photographic images that exist by, by the mid-1970s, you know, 130 or so years after the invention of the thing. Do we know how or why he got interested in, in, in this volume of stuff, this, this enormity? Well, I think that's a great question. I think that the enormity perhaps happened, happened after the initial interest. I don't know that they together knew that they would find such huge caches of images. They began and they sort of kept going and it began to build. And ultimately, I think they had to kind of create a stopping point. Otherwise, it could just go on and on forever. And they did work on it for a couple of years. So I, I don't know for sure, but I, I would say that that was perhaps really unknown territory. And they were, they were happy with and excited by what they found and kind of kept going. But I don't know that they ever knew that in the first place. But even in other series of work, like in the billboards, which are roughly concurrent and then extend through the 1980s, they are very much making work about how many images are already out there and not necessarily feeling like they need to add to them, to the number of images. So it's something that kind of held their interest for like a decade and a half, which is a long time. Is there a reason that this inundation of images, to use your phrase again, because it's a good phrase, sticks? Well, I think obviously at the time there's a huge kind of media push that's happening and a lot of people are turning towards exam examining that and feeling bombarded by by those images that they are not seeking out but are in fact coming to them. I think the billboards are a great example of that in any kind of advertisement, television and magazine where I mean obviously today we're we're almost numb to it and we're exposed to it at an even higher level, but I think the difference at that time was obvious because it was ramping up in a way that people were commenting on it and artists were looking at it and examining it. So I think the the billboards in particularly were a way of creating images that used a space that people were used to being filled with commercial images asking you to buy something or do something. And instead, there were a little reversal was happening, was asking you to look at something and think about something. Advertising, billboards are certainly advertising. There are a whole bunch of artists, especially in California, Robert Heineken comes to mind, who are particularly interested in advertising. Do you think there's any particular reason that so many people were finding advertising so interesting in the 1970s, especially Californians? Well, perhaps a lot of it was being produced here, and there was something that was very much in in the air in terms of, I guess, just, you know, Hollywood and that kind of visual production. Visually in the air? Or do you think or know that these artists had friends who worked in advertising, therefore they'd go out for beers on a Thursday night and would inevitably end up talking about it? I think perhaps. 
perhaps. I think that's something that definitely needs further investigation too. I mean, I don't know that in terms of Larry Salton or even Robert Heineken, for example. I mean, that's something that I think for many was just something that was in the air and that people were beginning to comment on and be interested on. But I don't know how deep those ties were to that industry at that moment. So we've been talking about how how Larry Sultan repurposes and reuses already extant images and does so in lots of work from the early 70s to the late 80s. But in 1983, so kind of in the middle of this period, Sultan stops well, he doesn't stop. Sultan takes a pause a little bit and begins to make pictures of his parents, which almost sounds banal, but the photographs are are anything but. Why does he suddenly decide, and you know, I, I guess at about this time, Robert Heineken is also thinking of becoming more additive. Why does Sultan become photographically interested in his parents in the early 80s? I think a little bit of that is personal. I think he... So biographical. Yeah. I mean, he talks about it being a time where he wasn't yet married, was sort of looking at this point in his life, he's in his mid-30s, and begins to think a little bit about his father, his father's story, which is really quite interesting, and masculinity in general. And it happens that he's visiting his parents in the San Fernando Valley. He's living up in Northern California. And Sultan is living up in Northern California. Yes, Sultan is living up in Northern California. And upon visiting his parents in their San Fernando home, they pull out some old home movies that they begin to look at. And he becomes really interested in, in those images that they had made of themselves and of the family and and what that meant and what, what they were doing at that time and the way that they were imaging each other, husband and wife and children and this life that they had made for themselves on the West Coast, having come from Brooklyn in the, in the 40s. And he begins to look at the images on this machine called a moviola that allowed him to look at individual frames. And so he starts to think of them as kind of still images. And that visually ignites his interest in then trying to make his own images of his parents and of their home. And he doesn't photograph himself or his siblings. He's really focused on on them in this place and in some ways the way they, they interact with each other. And it has a documentary style to it, but he also poses them. So there's kind of a mix of the two that's happening. And his parents are very savvy when they talk to him about about photography. And they, they say things to him such as, oh, this picture that you're making of me, you think it's a picture, picture of me, but I know it's really a picture of you. And some of this savviness is, is quoted in the catalog even, you know, next to the pictures. Yeah, exactly. The body of work he makes for about 10 years, and it's called Pictures from Home, 83 to 92, is realized as a book and as an exhibition. And as a book, it includes a lot of text. So it is interviews with them, some of his own writing, and he talks about it as a, as a collaboration, as a way of, well, not kind of abandoning their trust in this project, but bringing them into it and giving them the opportunity to speak for themselves. And so that's, that's the book, Pictures from Home. And when, well, I should say, when we install it in the exhibition here, it, it's, it switches a little bit because 
the focus on the text is minimized a little bit and we include more images than we do text. So you get the kind of shift in scale. So the images become the prominence and then some of the quotes do exist on the walls with bolstering the images. Is there a picture or two from the series that you think kind of visually makes the case or describes or stands in for, for what we've been discussing? I mean, there's some really iconic, maybe Sultan's most iconic images of his entire career in this series. And I wonder if there are a couple that you think kind of stand for the whole really well. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about those because I'm sure I know what you're saying. There's an image of his father on the bed, dad on bed from 1984. And he's dressed in a suit, his father is, and he's wearing kind of dress shoes, which are overly shiny. (laughs) They look like they haven't had much wear in a while. His hair, his hair is a little bit too long, and he kind of looks like he has, has no place to go. And it is this image in particular that, he's, that his father says, you know, this is really a picture of you, Larry, not really a picture of me. It's a picture in which you see a man dressed in clothes that very much look like the mid-1980s or, or early 1990s, maybe. I mean, you know, that, that, that period, the photos from 1984. But he's in a bedroom that screams like 1962 or 1968 or something. Yes, absolutely. The details of the house are are amazing. And I think a lot of people really, I certainly do. My, my parents lived in a house that looked a lot like this with wallpaper that's very gold and overly designed, <laughs> green shag carpet. Kind of everything's overly designed in a vaguely kitschy way. I mean, even like the fake floral arrangements are are over designed in a slightly kitschy way yeah uh big bedspreads but it's very i mean it's very much lived in it's a it's a it's a comfortable suburban house so before this series sultan is engaged in these richly conceptual projects concept before image projects so he doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity in those early works to explicitly and specifically engage kind of art historical standards or tropes or genres. But I think he does that a lot in pictures from home. And and I have a couple examples, but but first, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think he's doing that? Do you think there's some of that here? I, I'll be interested to see what you say, because I, th- I think that one of the, int- one of the things about this body of work, it's in my mind, it's a bit of a shift from the way individuals have pictured their, their families to date. Generally, they're sort of smaller, black and white, more intimate images like Harry Callahan or even Lee Friedlander, really sort of documenting what's happening around them. Their, their families are included. And here we're beginning to see color images a little bit larger, you know, not not huge, not kind of the giant scale photography, but but larger and slightly awkward, a little bit, a little bit posed, a little bit, you know, shot in the moment. And I think that's specific to this period of time and, and noting a shift that's happening in, in the 80s. I, th- I think that's all absolutely true. But when I look at, at a picture like my father's desk from 1987, which is an extreme, not an extreme, but it's a, it's a closely cropped, close-up picture of the middle of his father's, of Sultan's father's desk. And some of the, you know, we'll have an image of it on, on panpodcast.com, but some of the objects are like a calculator, a clock, a penny, safety pin, car registration, paperwork, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very much like a 1987 take on the American 
still life tradition, particularly the Trump OA tradition. I mean, there's kind of a nail right in the middle of it, for example. And I guess, I, I, you know, it seems like he's seizing an opportunity here, maybe, or maybe no. Well, I think of it a little bit more as kind of visual anthropology and a way of tapping into that genre, kind of taking images of details and things in and around and then bringing them back for investigation. So kind of more interest in the archive, but expressed in a different way. Perhaps, yeah. Because the stuff on this desk is is like that kind of thing. I mean, you know, your, your, your state of California car registration document and the sticker you put on the license plate on your car could almost be read as a, a, a sly little joke about, you know, earlier in Sultan's career, he took over the archive in here in, in, in a later work where he, he's, he's having a chuckle at how much the archive, uh, you know, produces stickers we have to put on our cars and runs us. <laughs> or a picture like Sprinklers from 1991, which is kind of a suburban Arcadia. You know, it's a it's a it's a luncheon on the grass, but because the grass is being watered, no one can have lunch on it. <laughs> so earlier we were talking about how Sultan was fascinated by advertising images and, and found ways to, to repurpose them when he was working with Mike Mandel. And here in Pictures from Home, Sultan finds ways to kind of maintain that interest in advertising, particularly in pictures of his mother, pictures where he shows his mother with a turkey. And and she kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say complains, but kind of points to those images as, as having a, a, a certain amount of loaded content. And and so how, how maybe is he engaging with advertising in these pictures and how does he kind of point that out to his mother? Well, I think you're right. I mean, he talks about the images that his father has taken of his mother and how it always looks as if she's trying to sell something, as if she's pushing a product forward. It might be a razor. It might be a turkey. And there's a picture there's a picture of Sultan's mother actually fake shaving her legs with a razor in which she's looking up and smiling at the camera. Right. And that is definitely a thread that that goes through. And I think that well, just the way that that is becomes a thematic through the images is quite subtle, but I think it if anything it reveals a little bit of the relationship between his mother and his father and the way that his father really pictured her and how that then might be different from the way that Sultan pictures his mother. And maybe how advertising maybe even shapes how we look at each other in period, period in, in general. Yeah, absolutely. So Sultan's series of pictures of his parents wraps up in, in 92, not, not just pictures from home, but also kind of the, the work he made or remade out of the family's home movie stills that you referenced earlier. At about this time, he starts doing editorial work, really for the first time. He starts shooting for, for big magazines and whatnot, including a, a, a kind of a, a famous picture of, of Paris Hilton on, on a bed in a Sultan family home. Why do you think he, he becomes interested in, in, in commercial work at this point? And is it coincidental or is there a reason that he stops shooting his folks at the same time he starts doing commercial work? Well, actually, it <laughs> happened that an editor had seen the work that he had done in Pictures from Home and invited him to come and make work, do a series at a retirement home in Florida. And so the, the pictures really led him into that editorial work. And he began to engage with it and became really interested in the way that those relationships changed what might be called his personal work and really only entered into those jobs, if you will, if they were going to push him in another direction. And there, you begin to see that there are a lot of these 
these ways in which the two are influencing each other. And I think it became generative for him. Kind of like that Paris Hilton picture, which which is maybe the one with the clearest relationship to, I mean, you have Sultan's father on a bed and then you have Paris Hilton on a bed 10 years, 15 years. Well, and, li- I mean, they're, they're... and literally that is actually his, his parents' home. Because he, yes, he rent the one which Paris Hilton. Yes, yeah. he he rented back that home. His mother, who had become a real estate agent, had had been the one to sell the home, and so he still knew who the owners were. And when the time came to make that image of Paris Hilton, he rented the house and and posed her in the space. And she's actually in yeah his parents' bedroom on the bed in a kind of oversized what robe and fluffy socks and kind of texting in a bit of a bored fashion on a bed with way too many. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's the, all, all of these kind of stereotypical suburban bedroom tropes are there. Yeah, exactly. And not in this show, but he did make a piece of her also posed in front of the rock. What chimney inside by the fireplace. So she she takes up in, in the living room as well. But actually, more specifically, is when it was the beginning of his work on on the Valley series that was begun through an editorial job. So the Valley series is concurrent. With, so, no, so, so the Valley series so, is after Pictures from Home. Yes, yeah. yes. No, the Valley series though is, is, is fully concurrent with his, the, the period during which he's making commercial yes. work. Sultan makes commercial work between 93 and 2009. The Valley series, which, which I'll ask you to describe in a moment, covers 97 to 2003. So what is, I guess, I guess first, what is the Valley series and why do you think it held Sultan's interest as a photographic subject? Well, the Valley series is work that he made on sets of adult films shot in the San Fernando Valley. And he began this project under an invitation from Maxim Magazine to do a series called, I think, The Day in the Life of a Porn Star. And it was part of a series about great jobs. So he was there to discover the great job of being a porn star. And when he was given the address of the shoot, it turns out that it was really in the neighborhood where he had grown up, just a few blocks away from Taft High School, where he had gone to high school, and on a street where he actually had had some friends and, and even knew some of the, the houses. And so was really brought back to this this adolescent moment, which strangely was then combined with this kind of erot- seemingly erotic setting. And so he became really very interested in these sets, the people working them, and and really the details of the sets, which were focused on these suburban houses. And this architecture began to be like a character in 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 the porn films. Yeah, bad faux tapestries kind of G-clayed on the textured canvas, super kitschy landscapes, super kitschy couches, artificiality everywhere. Just... I mean, it's a series, every image in the series just kind of pounds the viewer over the head with the connections between suburban life and what is physically happening in these suburban houses during the porn shoots. So in what context should we consider the Valley pictures? Do, do we do we think about it 
art historically? Do we think about it in the context of, of series photography? Do we think about it, you know, kind of where do you, where do you slot it in? Where do you, where, where does it fit? Well, I think maybe even a little bit culturally, if you look at the trajectory of Sultan's work, there's many instances where he's starting the series with found images. In evidence, he does so. The impetus for pictures of home begins with the found images of the family home movies. And then I like to think of these as sort of found sets. There are things that are happening that he happened upon. And can I, can I interrupt really, really quickly? So what is he shooting this series with? You say happened upon. I mean, is he is he shooting this series with a four by five uh-huh. or with? Yeah. So he's. I mean, he's, happened so upon, and that he's been invited to come to these places. Yeah. That are so he's making, but a progress. lot of these really do look like they're happened upon. Like yeah, like, exactly. Call, and they're like, oh, thing. it's happening over there. And so what you do, you know, you see the the makeup of these sets. You see the the cameras and the equipment, and and then you begin to see also the people. I mean, you see a little activity, but you also see people just sort of hanging around and waiting for their role to be played or, you know, whatever job they have to do in relationship to the set itself and kind of bored. And so I think that's really fascinating too. this juxtaposition that happens in each of these images is sort of what is supposed to, what is meant to be erotic for one is then in fact, really just sort of, you know, it's just a day job. So almost every image in the show, pretty darn close to it, is an image of America's post-war suburbs, the, the, the suburbs that kind of popped up between 1950 and 1980, to be even more specific about it. So is that an intentional, career-long conceptual choice he's making, or is it more just that's where he lived his life and knew people and places? I mean, I think that that's really the benefit of a retrospective in an inst- in a museum where you get to see work that somebody has made over time and begin to make these interesting relationships. I don't know that he ever set out to have that be his subject, but it certainly is a through line in the work that, I mean, this is his first retrospective. To this point, his work had been really shown serially in his individual bodies of work. And and, and indeed serially in books. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there hadn't yeah. been kind of a full career monograph. Right, either. right. And the things that begin to reveal themselves, let us know him as a, better as an artist. And one of those things is the suburbs and home and kind of the architecture of home and the cultural relationship within it as well. And it's not like he, near the end of his career and indeed the end of his life, as it turned out, thought about that and said, ooh, I'm overdoing this thing. I mean, his last series, Homeland, is, if anything, <laughs> even more about the suburbs. Than, than the previous work. It's, I, I mean, if he thought about it, he was really comfortable with that being a thing, I guess, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And calling it homeland and sort of owning that creates a really interesting kind of apex, I think, of the work. An, another question that kind of refers to the book. The last page of the catalog is very specific. What's on it and why? The last page of the catalog is a Q&A that Sultan did for Wallpaper Magazine, Valentine's Day in 2008. And it is, it specifically asks him things about himself and gives kind of humorous answers. I mean, one of the things that we wanted to have in the book and in the show as well was the opportunity for his voice to be heard so that you don't just understand him as a visual artist, but also as a writer and obviously as a teacher and somebody who was skilled in 
compiling narratives with words. And so this is an opportunity then to include that as well. And it also shows his sense of humor quite readily. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of funny here, including the image. What 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 is that? What 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 is that image? <laughs> the image is of him in kind of a plaid sport coat and uh, a tie. Maybe he has some Kleenex up his sleeve. He's being handed. There's something. There. It's whatever. It is, yeah, where the lining of the coat is ripped. Yeah. It's kind of hard to. Yeah, he's being handed a telephone, old-fashioned kind of head, you know, a receiver, and just one of his eyes is is visible through the. The top right corners he looks at kind of at the viewer it's kind of an image that advertises himself in a way even even and of course the q a format in a magazine context context is an opportunity for self-advertisement as well is there is there is there a story or a particular reason why you all thought that that was that was the way to do the last i mean nobody thinks about the last i mean lots of people think about the first page of catalog you see you see curators and book designers always trying to kind of come up with something visually or textually splashy for a first page, but no one does that with the last page. But, so but, you know, I wonder anybody why. who's right-handed picks up the book by the spine, takes their left hand and starts flipping from the back. And so oftentimes we, we go through these books from the back to the front. So I think that those of us who do that have the opportunity to begin the book with that great image and a few details about Larry Sultan and his sense of humor. I, I, I love it. It reveals a, a, a curatorial slash book designer sense of humor that's in keeping with the tone of, of much of Sultan's work. Rebecca Morris, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.